of exercise. Let me play my part. Check two, eight. Like, is that real? Did that happen? Like, <laughs> the structure of your brain actually changes. And do you still feel that every day? And then it got time for guitars. Eating disorder, like, I didn't want to die. Tendencies. But I didn't want to live. Girl. You gotta go in the hospital. You feel powerless because the body has a fear reaction. The opportunity to empower. No one can take away my power. I won't take myself out. Artists that are true like that, those are the ones that tend to create change. Back here at Living Proof Minnesota, Living Proof MN, live in the flesh, human beings with faces and everything. Uh, this is crazy. I don't know if I did more than like two interviews during the uh, the pandemic, only because like, you know, it's a trauma-based eating disorder that Cal had, so I'm always getting in. I never know when something really heavy is going to come up, mm-hmm. and I don't screen people like, are you going to bring up something really dark? It just either comes up or it doesn't, and I felt like Zoom would be just a horrible platform for, like, sorry, he did what to you? Sorry, my, my connection's breaking up. Like, no. So I just, like, kind of took a year break, which I didn't enjoy, but I'm really thrilled and, and honored to be back here again. Thanks for having us. So yeah. just for my, my formality and keeping my professionalism up, we'll just do full introductions again, say and spell your name and what you want to say about yourself. Cool. I'm Shira Sharpentier, S-H-I-R-A, Sharpentier, C-H-A-R-P-E-N-T-I-E-R. I am the founder and executive director of Living Proof MN, and we're going into our second year, July 1st, is official. Um, so we're really pushing strong this year, um, helping a lot of people near and far and changing our programs to adapt to the changing needs with the pandemic. And, um, we've got, um, a volunteer that has really stepped up to the plate and I'm not, I'm not having to do it by myself anymore. So it's been great. Um, well, that's me. I'm Tasha. Um, Tasha Golding, T-A-S-H-A, uh, Golding, G-O-L-D-I-N-G. Um, and as Sira said, yeah, I'm, um, I've been through the program here at Living Proof MN. Last summer I was here, um, and I just celebrated my first year in recovery in May. So, what? <laughs> yep. what? Um, so now I am volunteering here full-time, and I'm also the social media um, coordinator and... Here I am. Instagram guru. <laughs> yes, uh, Instagram yeah. guru. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> you, so, oh man, that brings up like 50 topics. Number one, our, our social at, at the foundation is like spotty. It's I get on it, I get off of it, and I because I feel like, and I think this has been confirmed, social media is horrible for mental health. I know. I so know. like running that and waiting for the, for the likes and hoping Isn't that, that we get mentioned. It's I like, know. I'm, I'm not living my own vision right now, but how else are we going to get known? So I I'd much rather meet two human beings in the flesh than sit around hoping I get a thousand likes on a post. I know. What's that like for you, that, that paradox? Um, I mean, I think I've accepted the fact that in reality, in, our today, in today's world, really the best way to get marketing and get our name out there is through social media, which is unfortunate, but, um, I mean, I feel like I, especially over the last year, I've developed more of a healthier relationship with social media where I'm not drowning in it. Um, and I mean, I used to be on it all the time, scrolling through aimlessly hours and hours and hours a day. And I think like, I think now that I'm putting it towards more purpose and towards living proof and towards getting our name out there, I think that kind of gives it a whole nother meaning. Um, and it makes it more meaningful versus like more draining. So I think, you know, doing social media and really using that as a platform to get awareness and education out there, I think has been a game changer for, you know, my own experience with social media. Absolutely. And for people who are are new, who didn't hear our last podcast episode, do you want to give the the 411 on what Living Proof is again, and, yeah. and you can throw in, obviously, any progress you guys have had in the last year, which has been huge. Definitely. So Living Proof MN is a 100% peer-run uh, nonprofit based in Bloomington, Minnesota. We um, are run by people in recovery or recovered from their own eating disorder and helping other people. We are 
the first of its kind in the whole world, where my husband and I opened our home two years ago to take people in um, and help them work on their own recovery. And in that last two years, not only have we you know, taken people under our home, our support groups are really thriving. People are making a lot of progress. We have one-on-one -on -one mentoring, um, mostly virtual with the pandemic, but hopefully that will change more to in-person. And we have really developed our presentation training programs, um, you know, delivering to Rotary Clubs, Lions Clubs, um, business people, and then we're going into schools, athletic clubs, um, training facilities, mm -hmm. sports teams, sports teams. So giving them sort of what to look for for eating disorders, how to approach somebody, you know, how to break down the stigma, and then also hopefully, you know, early intervention for people that maybe are just uh, showing signs of an eating disorder. Mm. Um, Can you walk through what, what some of those are? I think at the last board meeting you mentioned like there were some people you wanted to bring on to Living Proof, but then they mentioned like, ooh, I'm, I'm on a cleanse. I feel so good. It's like, ooh, like where's the line mm -hmm. between like I'm eating more fruit. It's summertime. Yeah. I'm having more fruit sure. salads. I don't feel like I have any symptoms, but then someone else might take that and you know, take an inch of a good idea and go a mile with it. And now they're on an elimination diet. Yeah. Like, what are the symptoms? Yeah, do you mm -hmm. want to say a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a few people I know that you've talked to recently who are saying, you know, I would, I, I'm here to lose weight. I'm here to help you. Help, I want help to lose weight. And Wait, to living proof? Yes. yes. <laughs> You're not being serious. I'm, no, yeah. this, this hap I get, we've got about between 35 <laughs> and 70 consults a month. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say at least 25% of them are wanting to lose some weight. Mm -hmm. And I said, um, so that goes against our philosophy. Mm -hmm. Our mm -hmm. philosophy is building relationship with food and your body. And if weight loss, gradual weight loss is a part of that, that's... Natural. That's what your want. That's what your body wants, mm -hmm. but our goal is not, you know, to change bodies, mm -hmm. and they they don't really understand. They're like, but you know, I'm X weight, and I need to get to be this size. I'm like, that's the diet culture that's telling you you need to be that size. That might not be healthy for you. Mm -hmm. What if you know your body wants to be at this weight? What if they say something like, do they ever come in and say something like, well, my doctor said I have to lose thirty pounds, mm -hmm. so I'm coming to you for help, and now you've got. You know, you as a medical, mm -hmm. you know, professional, because you're a nurse and mm -hmm. you know what you're doing. And then the doctor with the lab coat and the clipboard and, and, and all that, giving mixed messages, it must be really hard for the average person to piece this all together. Totally. totally. I mean, I think, like, there's a lot of missed, not even miseducation, just non-educated doctors out there about eating disorders. And I think there's just, like, a cookie-cutter example of what health is and what it's, like... The weight, your weight is supposed to be like what everybody's weight is supposed to be is supposed to be this like, you know, one size fits all category is what I think a lot of doctors think or go off the BMI chart. When in reality, genetics play a whole factor into it. Like if your family is a bigger bone family, you're not going to, you know, try to be this like. I don't really know how to say it, like this tall person who's, you know, basketball player. I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that there's just so many genetics that play into it that people are trying to fight against. Yes. And like, that's the problem is that like people are like, well, I need to lose weight because I'm X, Y, and Z. But in reality, like your body might not want to lose weight. Like this is where it's happy at. This is where it's healthy at. This is where it wants to run at. And if you're trying to fight against that, like you're going to be on running on a hamster wheel for the rest of your life. It's not going to be fun. <laughs> and then we got the yo-yo dieters, right? Yeah. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. Lose weight, gain weight, lose weight, gain weight. Go yeah. on the fasting, the cleanse, the yep. keto, the whatever it is. It's never sustainable. It's never no. some normal thing like, um, you know, just add some fruits and vegetables mm. to your day. It's like yeah. always some extreme crazy thing. Mm -hmm. I met someone once who said at her worst, she was eating only celery. She was like on an elimination diet where all she had left was celery. I was like, what? in the world like who could possibly recommend that to you and she's of course ended up in the hospital yeah mm -hmm. yeah so that's where it can lead mm -hmm. totally. um I, yeah oh, i was gonna say i think that's why we're so passionate about getting education out yeah. there because i mean like the most trained professionals in the world that think they know the human body to the t don't have any idea about eating disorders or have any clue on how to treat eating disorders and so i mean i think that's where we've really started to develop these presentations so we can mm -hmm. start to reach those people and start to reach those professionals and I mean, even people as, you know, like teachers to coaches to doctors to dentists, like we just feel like there's a 
huge lack of education that's needed. I think physical therapists too. You're, yeah, you want to say what your experience? Yeah, I mean, I um, even as a phys- seeing a physical therapist, I just had hip surgery a few weeks or a couple months ago, and I mean, both of them claim. I see two of them. Cl- they both claim to be educated in eating disorders, yet. Um, and I told them like over exercising, you know, was one of my symptoms and like compulsive, yeah, compulsive exercise. And um, I told her I was like, I just need more of a guideline because it's it's dangerous for me. Like I can start and then I automatically get this thought in my head, like I can go more and more and more and more. And I explained that to her, and then she's like, Oh well, I'm okay if you go to burnout. Like I'm okay if you just go- keep going, going, going until you can't go anymore. And here what? I am, and I'm like, thank God I'm in a better state of mind. Yeah. Because if I wasn't, I would have taken that and totally ran with it. And I just kind of like looked at her. I'm like, here you are. You just told me 20 minutes ago that you were educated in eating disorders, yet here you are telling me to work to burnout. And nobody should ever work to bur- burnout, whether you're an elite athlete or, you know, a day-to-day person. Nobody should be going to burnout. Yeah, out. that's crazy. Because then you might not even come back to it again. You right. Know, you might teach yourself to, to hate using mm-hmm. your body. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to, to bring up. I've got this idea of, because eating disorders are diseases of disconnection between mind and body, and, and you lose that important connection. Um, with the coronavirus, I think a lot of people who deep down would like to isolate and don't want to be out in the world and be seen and everything like that, kind of fed into that part of the mind, that darker place that wants to hide and just not come out of the covers. So I'm curious how people are reconnecting with their bodies now that we can go out and and see each other again, be in crowds. Um, Are you finding any kind of like healthy, useful activities of of that reconnection at all? Yeah. So we talk a lot about joyful movement. Mm -hmm. You do? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're moving away from exercise, anything that counts steps, repetitions, weights, numbers, whatever it is. And how can we enjoy nature, enjoy each other's company, enjoy moving our body, um, enjoy just feeling the temperature difference from going from inside to outside. Um, And we've been doing a lot of stuff together. We have um, one male here right now with us. It's been here for about three weeks who is an overexerciser and has a really hard time. You know, it's we've been having to teach him really about, you know, what is movement, what is it like, and what is it not. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been having a great time doing, we went to ropes courses together, we've gone to Minnehaha Falls, we went down by the river, uh-huh. to the lake. Yep. We um, did, like, an adventure park last weekend, which was fun. Yeah. Um, is he having a hard time not quantifying everything? He is, but he's doing a really great job. You know, it's been a slow progress for sure. And it's only been a few weeks, but I think he's starting to make that change where, you know, I want to be able to be active, but I don't want to get obsessed. Mm -hmm. And I don't, like Tasha said, I don't want to take it to the point where it's burnout Mm -hmm. and I want to be able to enjoy myself. Mm -hmm. Um, So we always sort of talk about the experience afterwards, like going to it saying, hey, remember, this is for fun. This is, you know, we're not doing competition. We're not being gladiators today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then afterwards, like, you know, what did you realize not being in your eating disorder mind and doing this activity? And he's laughing and smiling and just, you can tell there's a different level of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been the best part to watch him to figure that out. Yeah. I wonder sometimes if for people who are inactive, and maybe they have a binge eating disorder or something, and they are sedentary, and they want to get more active, but they they default to counting calories Mm -hmm. or counting how many did I burn or this or that. I actually wonder if they would be more active if it didn't come from a position of shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Have you found anything like that? I'm not sure. I I think that you have something going here. I think definitely if... If you go into a doctor's office and they're like, you need to start exercising for an hour every day or something like that, like it's going to feel dreadful. It's going to feel like a chore. But I mean, if you go at it in a, in a more like open kind of way of like, let's go outside and like kick the soccer ball around or yeah. why don't we like go do the ropes course, you know, putting like just joy into movement. Cause it just like, I mean, even when we do stuff like that, it doesn't feel like it's like, it's movement. Like it just feels fun. Mm-hmm. So I think like when doctors put on like the pressure of like, you need to exercise, it's going to feel like a chore. And the problem is, is when you set that expectation for yourself, right? We have another girl that I'm working with one-on-one and she's like, I have to go for a walk every day. And now it's, I have to go for two walks every day. Yep. But then guess what happens when you don't go for a walk? 
you feel guilty. Mm-hmm. So not not only is it the shame of being maybe a little bit overweight or being at a higher body weight, but now is the guilt if I don't do this because then I'm not good enough and I I'm not dedicated like other people that go to the gym every day. Mm-hmm. Then we've got another you Problem. know mental um, part of anguish that's yeah. just kind of riding on mm-hmm. your shoulders. Yeah. Definitely. Do you feel there have been any mental health benefits to to the movement? They talk about endorphins and stuff like that. Um, like, has that been helpful at all um, on kind of the positive side of, of being in motion but not doing it from a position of shame? Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I know I feel good. I Me too. And yeah. I mean, especially with exercise being such a huge issue for me before. Like, what I feel when I'm moving now versus when I was moving then is... So polar opposite, I don't even think I could explain. Talk about that. Like I, for example, like I would, you know, run myself into the ground to the point of burnout where I couldn't move my body. And I got to the point where I'd cry getting up every morning just to move, just to work out. And like going to like last week when we went to the adventure park, like I was exhilarated. I was happy. I was like, I mean, it was like, I was like five years old again, running around on the playground for the first time. It was like... And it didn't even feel like it was not a thought in my head did it come into like, oh, how many calories am I burning? Oh, I need to do this and this and this again. It's just like that like feeling of just like pure like joy and um, excitement and like being with the people here even and experiencing it with people that I love. And it's just, it's like a whole, di- a bunch of different things that come into like one emotion. And I think it's just so different, so different. Awesome. Very cool. Have you found that with other clients as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there is definitely a different level of appreciation. Um, You know, we do get some people that, but yoga is supposed to heal me. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what they say. Like, I need to go every day and it's going to, like, make me one with my body. And I'm like, well, but if you're doing yoga sculpt, are you being one with your body or are you pushing your body? That sounds like vanity. (laughs) And that's not yoga. Yoga <laughs> sculpt yoga. is like a contradiction in terms. <laughs> totally. And if anyone thinks like because it's low impact that you can't hurt yourself, like oh. you can hurt yourself. Yes. Do everything in moderation, you know? Like yes. I, I, I know people with yoga injuries. I've had a yoga instructor on the show. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, you can, you can overdo anything. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing it for vanity, you're not really tapping into the spiritual part no. of where yoga comes right. from anyway, which is, again, connecting with your body, Yourself. not yeah. thinking, ooh, does my down dog look better than this person to the left of me? You know, like, or someday I want to have the body of that person who's always in the front row in class. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you might just have a different frame and you have to come to peace with that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You can, it's great to be healthy, mm-hmm. but um, just self-hate to me is just like not the beginning. It's not the seed of anything good to grow, you no. know? No, definitely not. So can we talk a little bit about during the last year, it's, it's summer 2021 now, kind of like, how it's been with people fighting with that isolation piece that I mentioned before. And um, we don't really heal well in isolation. We heal well when we connect with people. So um, how have you helped people through that? And, and what is the kind of bright day start to feel like now that we're like at least one foot out of it? So we um, increased our virtual groups astronomically. So the need was there, the people were there, and we met the need. Um, we offered three groups a day. Seven days a week. Wow, you've been hustling. We have we have decreased a little bit. Now that it's summer, people are getting out, people are in community again. But the need was there and people came. We had between five and twelve people every group. We had a lot of consistent um people coming back every single time. Mm-hmm. Um and I know people said when they came on, this is what I look forward to every day is reconnecting. Really? And this is part of my day. I actually built my schedule around these groups. You know, and so that, I mean, that really made us feel like we're, we're offering something that, you know, they're not able to get right now. Um, and like so many people working from home, not seeing people. I have so many friends that were living by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we have decreased that because the need's not there. And we want living proof of men to move and flow with the needs. We don't want to create something that is not needed. And we want to be able to match um, and if the need goes up, we want to be able to meet it. And if it doesn't, I don't feel bad that we don't offer those groups right now because people are out there living their life, which is what yeah. I want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone's got to get back to definitely you know, forward to real life. Maybe you can't ever go back in history, but forward no. to real life. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so when we first met, Shira, you had talked about, you know, that hopefully this would not just be, you can't deal with everyone in the entire world, you're no. a couple of people, but that it would become a model that could be duplicated and emulated around the world. Are you having any progress in conversations in clinical spaces? What's that conversation like? Well, so, I mean, Tasha is one example. Um, we have had a pretty good success rate in the last two years of helping people. And I, um, I, I feel like two-year mark for somebody in recovery is about accurate for them to start really helping somebody else on a one-to-one -one level. Um, I think we do have people that are helping on a group level, and I think that's a little bit different. Yeah. But really, that trust and that authenticity um, just on a one-on-one. -on -one. So with Tasha and a few other people being at about a one-year mark right now with the recovery, we're getting closer to um, expanding our mentor services. Um, I don't know what it will be like for actually having a home like this. You know, I think that's a whole different commitment. But I think if we can start with the mentorship, mm -hmm. um, and I'm not just the only one doing it, and there's more voices and there's more um, perspectives out there, I think that that is growing our mission and that is growing our vision as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Had you, do you mind me asking a little bit about your personal story? Yeah, just, so definitely. Um, I mean, I grew up as an athlete my entire life. I was put on skis when I was three. And then I grew up as a figure skater and then a gymnast going into college and so, I mean, of course, I chose the two sports that were, like, you know, so um, body-focused. Sure. <laughs> um, not only that, but I grew up with a twin sister, um, and my mom also had an eating disorder. My sister developed an eating disorder around the same time I did. And it was just a very negative relationship with food growing up. Um, so that kind of was instilled into my head. Once I hit my teenage years, like... My body image plummeted as I just felt like in every aspect of my life, I was being berated on like what my body looked like, including myself. So then I just felt like I'm wrong. So or like my body is wrong. So I need to force myself to change it. So, I mean, especially in gymnastics and like going doing that through college, it was like 99% of my day was like, how can I change my body to be better and so I can do this and this and this and this and this? And then, like, how can I change my body to be accepted by my family? And then this and, like, it was just, like, a, lot, a, a bunch of things coming into just one problem with the eating disorder. And, um, you know, I went to college and I think, like, I maintained myself to a point of, like, quasi-recovery, like, through college because I didn't want to leave, I didn't want to have to take a break from my sport. But as soon as the sport was done, like, I just felt like my world crashed down because, like, that's all I knew. Um, gymnastics was my identity. An athlete was my identity. I knew nothing else. And I think I kind of took that and, again, ran with it out of college. Like, an athlete is who I am, so I need to keep that up. So I got into yoga. Um, I was an avid person who went to yoga, like, two, three times a day. And then... Um, I started teaching it and then I got into CrossFit and then like all of a sudden like my world was I didn't care about anything else I just cared about my world as an athlete but the problem is is like I say I was an athlete but I really say that that was my eating disorder like my athlete really? equaled my eating disorder and I think you know when COVID hit it was a really rude awakening for me to see like the day that the gyms shut down Ooh. it was like my head was like a light switch. I was like, I have to cut this out and this out, this out. I need to be doing this and this and this at home. And like, I mean, and that's kind of when I started really coming on to living proof because I was like, this is a problem still. This is a huge problem. And then I hit a point where, you know, I had an injured Achilles and, um, you know, I was tired. I was burnt out. I was crying every morning. I had to wake up and I was just so burnt out that that's when I came here. And I was like, I've never given myself a chance to see my, what my body is at when I'm not trying to force it to change. I've never really given myself a chance that I to at full recovery. I think I knew it was possible for, for me, but I had no idea how I was going to get there. And I think I just needed extra support to like help me with not working out because it's like I've gone to treatment before, I've taken a break, but going back to real life, like it was very hard for me to not go back. Those so transitions think, are so hard, right? Yes. So I think, you know, that's the short background of my own story. But, um, yeah, I think, like, the whole athlete um, mask that I put on was a huge problem. Um, and I think, I truly believe that that's, I'm probably not the only one who has felt that way. Well, that was another question. Is like, I'm really interested in eating disorders in the athletic space. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
was curious, like, did people pick up on your behaviors and mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, do you want to talk about anything? Or was it just super accepted in that world? Yeah. Of course I want to lose five pounds. Of course yeah. I want to, you know, lift a 20 pounds heavier yeah. weight or something. I think definitely high school, it was so accepted. Like when, I mean, I had a coach I know who struggled with an eating disorder at the time. I thought she was like God and I looked up to her. And so that was a problem in itself. But was like, she open about it or was she just oh, actively no. I mean, struggling? she was actively talking about how she's not eating X, Y, and Z, how she's cutting out gluten, how she's cutting out dairy. And then I felt I needed to do that same thing because I wanted to be just like her and I needed to lose weight and blah, blah, blah. And so, and then I, I got to college and, you know, it definitely went more unnoticed because I think, you know, you're more independent. People aren't with you, like all the time people aren't seeing you eat, like, and it definitely went more unnoticed. I mean, I did have a teammate who picked up on it and she ended up telling my coach, but my coach wasn't really on board with it at the time. Like he just like didn't know how to talk to Had no literacy about this. on the mental health piece. Yeah. And so, I mean, I really want to say like from sophomore through my senior year of college, like I was actively engaging in behaviors all the time, but I got just got so good at hiding it that um, nothing was ever really, no, nothing was really ever noticeable until I quit or until I was done with the sport and then it became noticeable and then there was concern about it. But my coach who arose concerned about it at the end of my senior year, like he's like, well, you're not my gymnast anymore. So I can give you these resources, but I mean... Good luck. <laughs> That's insane. So that touches on a huge point. One of the personal goals I have for the foundation is to increase the average person, layperson's mental health literacy around mm-hmm. trauma and eating disorders. And I think like the example I like to use is diabetes. Like if I have a friend who I know is diabetic and says, hey, pull over as soon as you can, I need orange juice. I know enough to know that's real. I may not know what what it means and what's happening with the insulin and everything, but I know, oh, wait, that's a thing. And I'm going to pull over and I'm going to respect that and honor that person's um, you know, physical need in that moment. When someone told your coach, this person's struggling, they didn't have the literacy to right. respond and do something meaningful about it. Right. And how can we improve that? How can we make a step change and increase the literacy? Obviously, I'm really focused on trauma, so we'll talk about that as well, but eating disorders generally as well, you know? I mean, I think people need to take a break from their life. Mm-hmm. You know, you it's very hard to recover and do your normal life at the same time. Recovery is a full-time job. It's mentally exhausting and physically your body is changing in so many ways and it's trying to heal and repair itself. It's draining. Mm-hmm. And so to expect somebody to stay in school full-time, to work full-time, uh, to support themselves is it's not really possible. Mm-mm. So if somebody is struggling, I think the first thing would be it's okay if you're not in your sport right now. It's okay if you take time from work. We have people that don't want to talk to their bosses about getting a medical leave because they're you know embarrassed and ashamed and well who's gonna cover for me? I mean this is your health. This is your this is your life. And if you don't take t- care of yourself now, you may not be here. That's yeah. the reality. Worry about your life expectancy more than who's going to shuffle the office papers around, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And th- unfortunately, that's not our culture, though. Yeah. We want to do more. We want to be the best. We want to get up the ladder. We want to show people we can do everything. We want to be superheroes. Um, how do we take that expectation off of other people and ourselves? Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk a lot to a lot of um, teenagers that are newly diagnosed and we ask them, you know, what is a driving force behind your eating disorder? And it's, you know, either um, I don't feel good enough, my parents only recognize me when I'm, you know, my body's changing or I'm not eating um, certain foods or I'm disciplined or there's some sort of trauma in the house. And um, in order to feel loved, I want to be perfect. And so how do we start changing that dialogue and that expectation that, it's okay to take care of yourself and it's okay to not have to be doing what everybody else is doing. Um, Yeah, it's just so hard. Conditional love and attention is a recurring theme on the podcast. A Uh lot of people will say, 
um, you know, I, I wanted to be perfect and I wanted my parents to care about me. I'm like, are, are you serious? You really thought if you were a certain weight, your parents would love you more? And it's like, you don't know my parents. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will say stuff like that. And I think it's like, like you said, Tasha, people have their own baggage and they unconsciously hand it right down to their kids. Mm-hmm. Even just with Definitely. observation, they don't have to pull you aside and say, don't eat this, don't eat that. You're watching them all the time. They're, right. they're modeling behavior. Right. And it's, it's especially hard when you, there's so many other people around you that, you're comparing yourself to. I mean, in sports all the time, there's always somebody who's going to oh, be better than always you. Always the ranking up on the wall in the lights. Yeah, you know, so like you're place, watching second. these like first, second, third place while you're constantly down in 10th. Of course, you're going to feel bad about yourself. And you're seeing them get so much praise. And when you're seeing them in smaller bodies, I think, or smaller frames or, you know, have more muscle or whatever it is. I mean, it's so easy to fall into that headspace of like, oh, I'm seeing them get so much attention. Not only are they first or second, like, but their bodies look so perfect. And then there's me down here in 10th who's like, well, I could look better. And then, I mean, that puts even more pressure on. So I think the comparison trap is is a very dangerous place to be too. <laughs> is, there a, is there a difficult paradox for, say, adolescent women, adolescent girls who would be doing better in their sport if they were stronger, but adding muscle makes your weight go up. So like they, are there a lot of girls who like don't want to be strong? Cause that bothers me. It's a good question. To be honest, like I think in my experience in gymnastics, like the idea is like to have this like prepubescent body that is insanely muscular, but very small framed. And I think like in order to achieve that, you have to stunt your growth. And so I think people want to not only be a certain like size, but like they also want to be like a smaller frame. So like not only are you short, but you're also super small as like a 16, 17 year old who should be a a lot different by that age. Like you shouldn't be developing by the time you're 18, 19 19 years old. And a lot of people, especially in sports like dance and gymnastics and running running and cross country, like their bodies don't actually develop until they're out of their sport and it's like or wow, ne- we have really? people that are in their 30 like mid 30s that have never had a period yes because of compulsive exercise yeah and they weren't like and stunting growth mm-hmm. right so if wow. you're not eating enough fat you're not developing breasts mm-hmm. and you're not getting a period mm-hmm. now in sports if you look at the olympics we were just we were yeah. observing this we were watching um the prelims for diving and running Completely totally flat chested Wow. I mean, these are 25-year-old women. I've never seen, you know, for better or worse, I've never seen, a, like, a track and field star that looks like They're, a full-bodied woman. No. Mm-hmm. But the only way you can do that is by limiting, over-exercising and limiting your fat intake. Mm-hmm. Doing anything in an extreme is kind of unnatural, isn't it? Like, mm-hmm. I'm sure people want to be the fastest person in the world and everything, but there's this old, there's this phrase from ancient Greece. I think we talked about it on the last, the last one. It was where... Good sport begins, good health ends. Yes. It's like, oh, that's dark. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's really dark. So how can we take that that warning? It's really a a cautionary tale and apply that to modern sports. I think people like Serena Williams who are, you know, open about, hey, listen, I'm muscular, I'm strong, this is my body, I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to lose weight, Mm -hmm. but I have 23 grand slams. (laughs) And, you know, Simone Biles is out there. She doesn't, like, to me, she doesn't look skinny and she's going to crush everyone. I think it's really obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that's got to be a positive sign, right? That's, yeah. That's good. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think there are people out there who are trying to change that perspective. Um, I think, you know, it's just, it's going to be a very, very slow process if it does happen. I think there's always going to be a coach out there. There's always going to be, you know, a judge out there, a another opponent that's like, this is how your body is supposed to be, so look like it. And I think, you know, trying to change even the world in sports, I think, is is going to be a task. But, I mean, um, I think there are people out there who are recognizing that this is a lot bigger of a problem that has been hidden for so long that we need to start make it, making it known. And not only in, like, that aspect, but in trauma, too. Like, how much sexual abuse has happened. And oh, that's horrible. That have, that's come out, you know, of the blue that's been hidden for 20-plus years. And, you know, like, all of these expectations of bodies and um, lifestyle and all of these things have just, like, you see them on the TV screen and you're like, they're awesome. They're like winning first place left and right. They must love their life. When in reality, they're like, I'm going to be probably recovering from trauma until I'm 80. <sighs> wow. Yeah. 
I think people looking from the outside just don't know, like, how does someone get away with something like that for so long? But if you're a kid, you look up to these coaches as, you know, um, role models and idols, and they also have a lot of control over your life. They're telling you whether or not you're successful at something that you've internalized and, and made important to you. So, um, like, what can we do about that? And, and you know, what what's kind of the, the light at the end of the tunnel to keep these kids safe? You just hear so many stories. Mm-hmm. <sighs> the loaded question. It <laughs> is. I mean, I think that being able to speak up and say something is not right. I mean, it's just a place to start, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much shame when you know inside something's wrong, but you don't want to say it. Mm-hmm. And you kind of think, well, it maybe it's supposed to be like this. Everybody else seems to be fine with it. But um, how do we start really listening to our internal gut feeling? Um, and I don't know if, if kids are really taught that anymore because mm-hmm. parents and teachers and coaches and have so much, I feel like, power over people that you do sort of neglect your own instincts. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I feel like uh, there's a lack of. I think, I think the fact that social media has an impact on it because it really has made kids not develop the communication skills as effectively as when there wasn't like electronics around. So I think having kids speaking up for themselves comes a little bit more foreign because they don't have those skills built up as well as you know before. Um, you do hear a lot about that, like kids who grew up with the internet and, and social media and everything, like they don't pick up on social cues, facial expressions, all mm-hmm. the normal things, which we've evolved to take in and pay attention to over tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. And we've just, in a generation, we've engineered it out of ourselves. Like that's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. <laughs> it's really awful. Um, I mean, just the fact that you can get in touch with somebody over the internet, you can make an appointment you can set this date and then you can meet up at a place without ever talking to them and not even knowing what they look like, not even know like not even knowing what their voice sounds like, and then you just get there and you're just like, the internet just did this for us. Like there was no there was no human interaction in that. And it's I don't know. It's very it's surreal almost. And I think part of it, you know, obviously social media and the world with the internet is great because People can get resources that they may not have been able to get, but then it's, you know, causing just so much depression and anxiety and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and normalizing so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Leading to terrible situations and cyberbullying. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So on, on the athletics piece, we talked a little bit about, um, and I think there was a high profile case recently, wasn't there, of a, um, Gymnastics coach at yeah. a high level who yeah. was bothering these young girls for like mm-hmm. ages, plus like, years. Yeah, his whole life basically. Mm-hmm. Um, like, is it just a matter of people need to start speaking out? Parents need to speak out. Like, how do you how do you teach yeah. a kid at five, six, seven years old if X Y Z ever happens? That's not okay. And you tell me no matter what the person is saying to you, this is our secret. Mm-hmm. No one's going to believe you. Blah blah mm-hmm. blah. No, what does that talk like? Mm-hmm. Man, I think, um, you know, I've read some of the stories, especially on that case, and it sounds like, you know, the girls talked. The girls, like, was like, oh, is he doing this to you? Is he doing this to you? And, you know, all of them were like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that normalizes it. So that's problem number one. But So then, the more he did it, the more they thought it must be okay. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. if I'm not the only one that's doing, getting it done, then then it must be okay. Like everybody yeah. else is not saying anything either. Yeah. So he had strength in the numbers of his victims as opposed to there's a bunch of us. We're not going to stand for this. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Wow. And then when you have, you know, coaches and, you know, other higher up people who look at this doctor as this like, um, like God almost like he's the best doctor. He's the US doctor, USA doctor. Like he's fixed X, Y, and Z. He knows what to do. He also like, co- like, tricked the girls into believing he was the nice one. So he, like, snuck them candy and, like, you know, would laugh with them, joke about with them. And, like, so they thought he was, like, the nice one compared to, like, the coaches who were constantly screaming and yelling at them and sitting on them. (laughs) Um, And I think that's also another issue where he just, like, used his power to his advantage and, you know, used his, um, you know, nice skills to his, his advantage. But I think... I mean, I think having, 
I think getting in parents involved is, is something that could be more powerful. And, um, how, I mean, I know as me as a kid, I probably wouldn't have ever gone to a parent about it. I mean, my relationship with my family is a little different, but still it's not something that like, especially if you hear other girls, this is happening to other girls or other athletes, like, oh, this is normal. But I don't know. It's, it's a difficult question to answer because it's like, that's something that needs to be stopped. But how do we teach these kids to speak up for themselves or like ask an adult, is this normal instead of going to each other about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, but hopefully, you know, that case will, will bring it to light and, mm-hmm. and show people, listen, you can definitely, you can put these people away. Well, yeah. Yeah. That's a huge thing. So you were talking earlier about, um, that one of the ways I think about living proof, I hopefully it's still correct is kind of not just a bridge from treatment to your normal life, but even sometimes an alternative. Mm-hmm. What do you think your normal revolving door eating disorder treatment facilities can learn from living proof? Well, that it really takes an individualized approach to help somebody, you know, and there's a lot of trauma therapy out there right now um, that in order to help somebody heal, it has to be specific to that person. And that's what we try to do here. We get to know the people so well and, you know, we have them spell it out. What is your eating disorder like? What are your rules? What are your beliefs? What are, and I mean, I never did that at treatment in all the times that I went there. So we address exactly what they're doing, not, you know, this is what everybody experiences or this is what everybody thinks. Um, so I think the individualized, the fact that you're getting to talk with somebody that's in recovery, I never, I never even knew anybody in recovery. The, you're living with somebody, you're able to bounce things off, you're able to see, like, you know, what happens when you're letting go of your eating disorder and you're faced with XYZ? What would I, you know, what is better to do? Um, I think just that um, that role modeling is mm-hmm. something that we talk a lot a lot about, mm-hmm. and you know so far our success rate is is very good compared to other treatment centers. It's not a hundred percent, but mm-hmm. um, you know we're still trying to figure out what is the most helpful and mm-hmm. what is um, you know when people have eating disorders for ten plus years, it's not an easy quick fix mm-hmm. fix. And it takes time to undo something that is, you know, very wired. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, another thing, too, is meal plans. Mm. I think uh, every single treatment center you go to will put you on some sort of meal plan. Like, you need X amount of grains in this meal, X amount of fat in this meal. Down to the minute of the day. Yeah. Like, they'll give you shit for not having dessert. Like, calm down. I just don't, maybe I don't want a brownie. I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... (laughs) Having a meal plan is just an eating disorder, but morphed in a different way. It's giving you a guideline. It's giving you a strict guideline on what you need to stick to every single day. And I mean, that's one thing that I really did not benefit from in treatment, where I just felt like I would, it put me on even more of an anxiety loop because when I got back from treatment, I was like, oh, well, I'm really hungry, but I have to stay in this meal plan. But then I'm like still thinking about food and my, my life is still revolved around food versus, I mean, being here and learning like, you're not supposed to restrict yourself every single day. You're not supposed to have a set amount of each thing at every single time of day or every meal. Like, we talk about this all the time. Like, some days, like, you might be a lot more hungry and eat a lot more. And then other days, you might not feel very good. Like, your body changes from day to day. And that's what they don't treat, take, uh, like, take into consideration take into consideration at all in treatment. And I think that was a game changer for me because I never would have ever thought about that with that or thought about eating and food like that until I got here. And um, I just, I'm a huge believer that I just don't think meal plans are effective effective for a full and sustainable recovery. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I know with, with Kel, her eating disorder was like, she didn't realize on a given day that she hadn't eaten. And it could be evening, it could be the middle of the night, and she just didn't even notice. So for her to have something written down like with all the blank spaces, like, wow, seriously, I haven't eaten at all? Like... You know, sometimes I wonder if that added time for her, but you definitely need to look and see, does this, is this going to benefit this individual rather than maybe throw everyone into a cookie cutter approach because you're dealing with thousands of patients at a time. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting piece. What, what kind of tools have been helpful? So we talked about some of the don'ts from, that they throw at you at the clinics. What are some of the positives? 
Yeah. So I think with the meal plan piece, we do this thing called choices. So, I mean, when people come in, obviously they are trying to learn and like start to learn to listen to their bodies. And I think that was, this is just one skill for me that really helped with the eating piece is just like, you know, I learned like what my, about like what I felt like I needed at every single meal. And the more I started to like learn and listen to my body, the more I started to like wean off of that. So you had like certain choices, certain amount of choices at every single meal or snack. And then like the more you kind of, you know, your body started to come in tune with your mind and your hunger cues came back. Like that's when I was able to kind of start weaning off of that and more listening to my body. And I think like that was so effective for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the choices doesn't dictate how much of everything you need. It's just you need, um, you know, one choice is about 100 calories. So if we say, all right, you've got five choices right now, it's about 500 calories, and we don't do anything specific. So it doesn't go to the exact number or the exact tens or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Um, And it's more free-flowing. It's very loosey-goosey, which nobody likes. But that helps, right? Because everybody wants to know to the number how much they're having and we get a, in a lot of um, arguments in the kitchen, right, in the beginning, because they're like, but this is 120, and this one's 70, and I'm like, yep, okay, so that's about 100, and the other one's about under 100, and but they're just so convinced that they need exactly the right number, and, you know, they get into this new rhythm of, like, realizing that that's not important anymore, mm-hmm. and getting getting calories in and being able to move on with your day and being able to do the things that you want to do mm-hmm. is, is what really counts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's teaching a whole different way. Um, and we get people into the kitchen about a weekend with them, ch- like choosing their snacks and, um, helping portion stuff, which isn't done at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we're there overseeing things, but then as they get further along, we step out of the kitchen and just kind of see how it goes and um, we usually let things slide for a little bit, but then we'll come in and say, hey, we've noticed this the last two days. Have you noticed yourself doing this? Um, so that they can start taking the ownership too, and it's not just us dictating what their recovery looks like. Mm-hmm. For people who have life-threatening restrictive eating disorders, um, like with, with the awareness piece missing, like I mentioned before, do you keep an eye to make sure they are hitting that minimum safe amount? Yep. And how do you do that without it feeling like we're back on calories again. Yeah, and you know, there there's no way to exactly do it without knowing how many calories because we have a lot of people that restore weight here, a lot of weight. You know, they come ex- severely underweight, and we do have to have that way of knowing how much they're eating because a lot of people have to increase what they're eating by the week one, another couple days, another couple days. Um, and so our, just our system with the choices is the most loose way that I can figure out how to keep track. Mm -hmm. But then, like we said, as they get closer to their, to a body weight that we feel is, you know, maybe um, more appropriate for them, we move away from having to have a certain number and them listening to their bodies and just kind of checking in and how their weight is either staying, is it going up, is it going down um, and giving feedback. But, you know, it's been months since you took your weight and I don't know if there's, I mean, maybe it's gone up, maybe it's gone down. Yeah, I but, think I said to you, like, when I had surgery, I saw my weight for the first time. It was the first time, I think, ever I saw my weight and didn't cry or didn't panic or didn't freak out. And it's crazy because here I am thinking, like, I'm going to be this ginormous sumo wrestler. My weight's never going to stop if I eat normally. And, like, I mean, my weight really hasn't moved that much, um, at least since, like, I think the last time you weighed me. Mm-hmm. And, like, I mean, there was, like, a nine-month difference. And it was just, like kind of fascinating to see like how the biggest fear I had in was eating normally and thinking that it wasn't going to stop and to see that fear totally be false was so incredibly eye-opening I was like oh my god I just spent the last 15 years trying to control my weight when in reality this is where it's been at this is where it's comfortable at <laughs> never needed controlling never what needed do you mean by you didn't think you would stop you thought if you ate a, a normal healthy amount mm-hmm. you know daily caloric value whatever yeah that you would just do a little more plus 10 percent plus 20 percent yeah. and that you would just i just end up a sumo wrestler. yeah i just thought my weight would keep going and going and going and going i mean it's so hard for people to understand wow. that if you eat your body actually uses that food and nutrients as fuel right I think when you have an eating disorder, because you're so used to getting rid of it, either exercise, laxatives, uh, purging, whatever it is, or restricting, that if you have food and you don't get rid of it, then it's just going to build up and build up and build up. Mm -hmm. 
but it doesn't do that. You know, you eat food and your body uses it. Mm-hmm. Then you need more food and your body uses it. Mm-hmm. And so it's just like such a very foreign concept when people have eaten disorders for so long and they've always had some way to eat but then get rid of it. And, um, yeah, it's it's just fascinating that, you know, we have people that are on high caloric values a day and their body's not gaining any weight. And they're just like, it's got to be. Like, I feel like I've gained 10 pounds. And, like, you may feel that way, but your body is using every single nutrient that you're putting into it. Mm-hmm. Does a person's metabolism change as they're coming, like, say, into refeed or as they're getting nutrition for the first time? Yeah. And, and can you talk about some of those changes for people who might be expecting that as they get into recovery? Oh, yeah. It's very, it's very, um, the difference is, is unbelievable. So they come in and really their body is sort of shut down and trying to conserve everything that they may be putting into their body, even if it's just some spinach. Um, and then when you start putting more food in your body, your body starts kind of kicking into gear again and trying to figure out how to restart. Um, and what happens is, you know, they can go into um, hypermetabolism where they're just burning everything off, um, sweating at night, um, you know, sometimes dropping blood sugar just because their body is, is using all that nutrients. Um, and just having to increase their calories because their body is working in overdrive to repair, to rebuild, to sustain itself. It's like, oh my God, finally I can, you know, use these nutrients because I haven't gotten them for so long. And Mm -hmm. so that, um, metabolism really, really gets kicked on. Uh Um, and that's a huge factor in just being able to support a caloric need for that person is, Mm -hmm. is making sure that they're getting enough. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. On the flip side of the restrictive piece with, like, say, binge eating disorder, which I think people don't talk about quite as much as, like, um, anorexia nervosa and, and bulimia still to this day, um, they're kind of, like, outliers. Like, oh, well, why do you need eating disorder treatment? You're overweight anyway. Like, they they almost get treated like a redheaded stepchild. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, kind of, your thoughts on the food industry and how, like, there is some evidence that there's stuff like that's engineered to make you not feel full. Like even with water, like you'd think how innocuous is a bottle of water. Well, if you look at it, it has salt. There's a reason there's salt in your bottled water. They want you to buy another bottle. Mm -hmm. Like, do you do any education for people around? Hey, listen, if you're not full, when you know you just ate a day and a half worth of food, um, here's how to make some different choices. And it wasn't your fault. I mean, that's really hard because so many people with binge eating disorder don't want to actually come out and say that they're struggling. You know, Mm -hmm. we get um, people that sign up for a consult and then never show up. And then they'll, you know, sign up a month later and then they'll like, come on. They're like, I was just so embarrassed. And like, I haven't told anybody this for 20 years and I just don't even know where to start. And, you know, part of it is saying that when you tell yourself that food is good, bad, reward, a treat, um, for punishment, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you start internalizing that and then food becomes some sort of, um, mechanism, right? Whereas it's just nutrition. So how can we figure out balance, what your body needs, what you feel like and eat in moderation and dealing with emotions and dealing with stress in different ways and not relying on, um, on food in that way. Yeah. And it takes a long time, you know, really learning different coping mechanisms, how to reach out for help. Um, you know, sitting with uncomfortable emotions, nobody wants to do that. And I keep reminding people, you're not going to die from sitting with an emotion. Get the music behind the mission. Hate Becoming by Kelly Nicole on iTunes and Spotify. If you guys haven't checked out the merch table, join the movement. Buy the album. Get your Kelly Nicole band merch and donate what you can at kellynicolefoundation.org. Courage is from Amplified!